0: Hi, and welcome to Strange Sound. This is Joe. Glad to be with you. Here we are again another week. Today is, I'm recording this on Saturday, June 12th, 2021. Just to put a stake in the ground, as it were, as I usually do. Uh, likely that you won't hear this before the 14th. Um, so again, uh, as always take that into consideration. (laughs) If I'm talking about anything time-sensitive, I am on the 12th, after all. And uh, if you're on the 14th, that means you've got two more days of knowledge and learning than I have. Anyway, uh, glad to be with you. Uh, I want to start with my standard disclaimer, as I often do. My standard disclaimer is, as such... Uh, the views expressed on Strange Sound are my own. Um, they represent uh, no one else's views but my own. I haven't consulted with anyone. Uh, no one has inserted their views into my mind to be di- to be distributed to you uh, via this podcast. No one has hypnotized me and filled my mind with their points of view. These are all my own points of view. Sometimes I draw on other people's facts. Because I'm not a journalist or a historian or a um, writer of texts. I am more a commentator. So, like most commentators, I am, uh, let's say, parasitic on the work of others. (laughs) So, you know, if I'm making reference to certain facts that I know the providence for, I will try to provide some guide to that providence. Otherwise, uh, I'll just bloviate and you can listen to it or not. Uh, but the views expressed on Strange Sound, to put it briefly, are my own. And they represent no one else's uh, views necessarily. Um, not those of my friends or neighbors or family members. Uh, not those of my employers or my coworkers, uh, No one. Just me. Okay. I'm be- I think I made that clear. And I do this every time because uh, my assumption is that some people listen to this for the first time. You know, any episode may have some new listeners. So I do this. Enough said. Anyway, here we are. So um, it's been a kind of an interesting week. I, as I typically do, I'm going to read my um, blog post for the week. My uh, furious rant, if you will, which you can read yourself if you prefer to hear the sound of your own voice or the voice in your mind, reading it off of the web, you can find it at big follow the blog tab, click through to the blog, I have a WordPress blog on the other side of that, and just look under political rants and you will find this post Um, Along with many others. I've been blogging for about 20 years now. And this post is called Meeting the Enemy. And it is still us. And that's a kind of a tangential reference to (laughs) the creator of Pogo. (laughs) The uh, comic from many, many years ago. Uh, 1950s. Anyway, I won't go any further with that. Meeting the Enemy and it is still us. And this was posted on June 11th. And it goes something like this. President Biden headed off to Europe this week to meet with the leaders of rich, white-dominated countries on that side of the pond. His meeting with Putin is drawing as much interest as you might expect. Some of the recent hacking attacks and ransomware incidents have been blamed on operations connected at least tangentially with Russia. And of course, A goodly number of people within the broader Democratic coalition see Russia as responsible for having delivered Trump into the White House in 2016. They see all this and more as pieces of the same puzzle, and they want Biden to read Putin, the riot act. To the extent that the ransomware stuff can be attributed to the Kremlin, it can be seen as part of the same effort that drives their illicit involvement in our political campaigns. They want to sow confusion and internal conflict in the world's sole remaining superpower as a means of keeping us from confronting them. That only makes sense, from their point of view. But the idea that they are having an outsized effect on our politics is vastly overblown. We Americans are fond of conspiracy theories, especially ones that involve nefarious foreign actors. Yes, we have serious problems, but they are self-inflicted, not imposed from without. I've said it on this blog many times before, and I'll say it again. I never liked Putin, even back in the early 2000s when that was kind of a minority view. Uh, But the impact of their agitation in support of the Trump campaign in 2016 was marginal at best. And by there, I mean the Russians. The biggest reason for the failure of the Clinton campaign was, wait for it, Hillary Clinton. The biggest non-Hillary factor in her loss was, was the FBI probe and James Comey, but even that issue was rooted in her own flat-footedness. Let's face it, she was a terrible candidate from the beginning, and in spite of that, was almost elected. <laughs> Regarding Trump's win, she has no one to blame but herself. Did Putin want Trump to be president? Probably, as likely any Russian leader would. It was obvious that Trump was going to make a mess out of everything from the very beginning. That comports with Russia's long-term strategic goals vis-à-vis the United States. And yes, Trump was nice to Putin as part of his constant self-dealing. He wanted that Trump Tower Moscow. But U.S. policy towards Russia was basically the same as in recent administrations. I'm talking about under Trump there. As Americans, we have no idea what it's like to be a nation in the world that has to deal with the United States. The U.S. is the most powerful military, economic, and political player on Earth, and we don't exactly walk around on tiptoe. Basically, every other nation is dwarfed by our power and our influence, so they reach for whatever they can to throw us off. In the case of Russia, the most cost-effective methods of doing that include exacerbating existing divisions between political factions and perhaps making commodity prices, gas and beef, for instance, go up. That's espionage 101. We do similar things in other countries, only from a position of power. What will Biden say to Putin? God only knows. It would be nice if he did some serious work towards de-escalation of differences, maybe reinstating the IMF treaty, etc. But only time will tell. When you have most of the power, you are inevitably tempted to wield it in increasingly arbitrary ways. That would be hard for Biden to overcome, and he shows no signs of doing so. Love you, Joe. Okay, i am going to say, uh, for my own part, that that was a pretty (laughs) ham-fisted blog post, and uh, I was... I was pretty unfocused. uh, So I do apologize. I've done better. I've done worse. Uh, You know, that's just the way it goes. I I was a lot of times I think about what I'm going to write about uh, on the blog early in the week and it seems clearer to me then. And then by the time I get around to writing it, uh, I've kind of lost the thread. So in this case, it was particularly egregious. (laughs) <laughs> but I, it's not that I don't agree with the basic underlying concepts and positions, which I myself understand because I am the writer and not the the person who's either reading it or listening to it. Um, I get that. Uh, some of what I'm trying to communicate, i I think are valid points, but I'm not sure I communicated them very well. So, it was a little rangy. Uh, I was trying to take the occasion of Biden going overseas and meeting with his his fellow um, national leaders um, in the G7, basically the rich countries, as an opportunity to talk about American power and American politics and our tendency to sort of look at ourselves as, uh, look at a lot of our problems as being imposed by foreign actors Um particularly as it relates to the Democratic coalition. I mean, it's certainly not something the Democratic coalition owns, right? I mean, the right is constantly blaming everything that's wrong with the United States, either on the left or on foreign actors or both, like the left being in in, uh, collusion with foreign actors. And there's a certain amount of that that obviously goes on with the Democratic coalition, you know, Uh, Trump was a Russian puppet, you know, the Manchurian candidate, that sort of thing. Uh, which was, which was kind of ridiculous. Um, and the point I was, I think the central point I was trying to make in this blog post was simply that the idea that Trump was made president by the Russians is just ludicrous. And it always has been. Yes, they were... (laughs) The things that they did contributed to his win, but not decisively. I seriously doubt that. I've seen no evidence to to indicate that they made a difference, a huge difference. They did what they could to discourage people. They tried to depress the vote. But did they depress the vote even as much as Americans did? No. (laughs) Americans are experts. You know, American election officials in uh, many, many states are tremendously expert at depressing the vote. You know, they've, they've been doing it for, for over a century. <laughs> I mean, they've been doing it forever. The more people that have become eligible to vote over the years, from people of color or men of color at least, to women, um, and as the franchise has expanded... They have done their best to, they have ratcheted up the voter suppression to keep those people from fully participating in democracy. So, yeah, you know, the Russians, yeah, maybe they discouraged some people from voting. I don't know. Through Facebook posts, possibly. But I I think it was pretty marginal. They do what uh, great powers do when they are trying to trip up even greater powers <laughs> is that they they try to sow dissension they they try to exacerbate existing divisions within societies like the United States they can see where the divisions are and they they try to exploit those those divisions to the extent that they're involved in the recent hacks that we've seen they they try to disrupt our our, our economy to the extent possible. They're not super crazy about the current administration, um, but they don't trust any American administration. And the point I was trying to make there as well is that simply that, you know, I don't know, I've talked about this in previous podcast episodes, and I don't want to sound like a broken record, but honestly, Trump and his administration represented a kind of bifurcated um, approach to foreign policy in a sense, um, when he was on the left, more or less, when he broke from the um, foreign policy blob consensus um, with respect to, say, North Korea or with respect to uh, Russia or whatever, and I hate to say the left because it's not really accurate in the case of, of Russia, but anyway when he broke from the, foreign po- the sort of bipartisan foreign policy consensus on Russia, the it was really mostly him and not his administration. The foreign policy establishment essentially maintained course, you know, within certain tolerances, within, within a scope of what is normal for American foreign policy. A little on the right side, perhaps, but certainly within the bounds of what American-Russian relations have been like in recent decades. Same thing with Korea. You know, yes, he was able to call off the joint exercises with South Korea, which I thought was a good thing because they're provocative, um, <laughs> which, which was great. I thought that was a good step. And I thought it was good that he reached out to Kim Jong-un, frankly. But There was no substantive change of policy on the Korean Peninsula with regard to the United States. The same conditions obtained now as as obtained before Trump's rule. So (laughs) it may have been personally different, but the foreign policy establishment stayed within—they stayed in their lane, right? They stayed within the bounds of what was considered acceptable for foreign policy. And I, I I would argue the same thing with Russia, I mean he took a right word stance on on Israel Palestine, on Venezuela, um, and you know and when I say he I mean Trump, <laughs> um, and in those cases yeah they they steered American foreign policy towards the more aggressive side though there weren't any major invasions during his uh, four years in power. Um, There were provocations. Um, They were certainly ready to have a war with Iran, but they didn't quite get there. Um, And they certainly provoked them. (laughs) They put Iran on notice, as I remember. (laughs) National Security Advisor. (laughs) First days of the Trump administration. Uh, Mike Flynn... Standing up there saying, and we're putting around on notice. <laughs> I remember thinking, oh boy, this is gonna be a great four years. Starting out wonderfully, but then he was gone. Um anyway. Maybe it was Turkey putting around on notice, who knows? I forget whose payroll he was on at that point. But again, I guess my, my main point is simply was there <laughs> is there a, you know, was there a massive departure from American foreign policy during the Trump administration. there was some um, freelancing going on at the very top at the very apex and a little bit of like uh reality show you know um dazzle, let's say, but underlyingly not very much changed. They did of course move the embassy in, um in Israel to East Jerusalem, which, you know, I've thought about sort of writing to Tony Blinken and saying, have you considered moving your uh, um, embassy in Israel back to Israel? Because right now it's not in Israel anymore. It's in East Jerusalem, which is not part of Israel, um, except in the minds of the Israeli government. Um, have you considered moving your embassy back <laughs> to the country that, uh, you you are sending an ambassador to <laughs> as opposed to occupied territory. Um, but, uh, that's on my to-do list. Let's put it that way. So, uh, how can I expand on what I was writing about this week? Well, I'm not sure there's much more to say about it to the extent that I can define exactly what I was talking about, <laughs> but, um, yeah, uh, Biden's foreign trip, um, announcing... What is it? Half a billion doses of vaccine being contributed to the developing world. Well, that's that's nice. Uh, That's a that's a down payment, uh, one that won't be fulfilled, I'm sure, until sometime next year. Um, You know, that's a step in the right direction, but a very small step. There's a lot of people in the developing world. There's a lot of people in the non white, wealthy you know, non-wealthy world, <laughs> and uh, we should get them all shots. <laughs> we should get them some shots as quickly as possible. Uh, I noticed that he left Venezuela out of the list because they have sanctions on them. Um, I don't know whether Iran is included. I, I don't really know. Um, my guess is that everybody we don't like is not included in the Kovacs uh, regime, which is crazy. And, you know, again, just an extension of bad policy from the Trump administration. Has Biden departed from some of the more egregious breaches of arms control agreements between Russia and the United States? Not so far as I'm aware, though he has recommitted, supposedly to start two, he has not recommitted the the, uh, United States to the Open Skies Treaty. I have not heard anything about the IMF or Intermediate Forces Treaty um, that was broken by um, Trump and essentially thrown out. So uh, that concerns me, particularly as we are still spending enormous amounts of money on nuclear weapons, something that I discussed last week. But we'll see what they talk about. Um, I haven't heard anything on this yet. Uh, I've been sort of half listening to the news, but not, not in any great detail. So what else have we got? Well, it's been kind of an uh, eventful week in a lot of ways. Every week is, is that to some extent, right? Um, we almost never have a dull moment here in the United States uh, I think what was particularly upsetting to me this week, and this is not something that I blogged about. Um, it's it's sort of back to Israel-Palestine, but it's more a domestic politics issue. Um, the uh, dog pile on Ilhan Omar <laughs> by not only Republicans, but actually principally led by Democrats. Um, These sort of, pro-Israel democratic lobby in Congress dumping on Ilan Omar because she had the temerity to compare um, the United States and Israel with Hamas and the Taliban. Um, And people got all sort of worked up about that. This is the sort of thing that I have to say uh, is infuriating, I mean, I, I find it infuriating that Democrats took the lead on that, that they felt like they had to, you know, sort of make a big fat point out of this. Um, there was a a group of Democrats who called on, you know, Ilhan Omar to apologize and were trying to get her to sort of not, you know, sort of walk back her, her comments. Um, I have to say, I mean, I've... I've seen the underlying posts that they were talking about, that they were reacting to. Initially, it was a committee meeting that um, Ilhan Omar was was um, participating in uh, via Zoom, I believe, um, where she was uh, talking to, I think, talking to Tony Blinken about an um, international criminal court case against both sides in Israel- Palestine against both sides in Afghanistan and she was she was basically asking Tony blinken about this about um, particularly the question of if the United States does not recognize the ability of uh, the Palestinians to go to the ICC and ask for redress then where are they supposed to go which is an obvious question if they can't access, uh, this international institution of justice, um, then where are they supposed to go? Because they can't access the Israeli courts, the occupation. You know, they can't get any justice there. They can't access those courts. And they're they're not going to, you know, they're ruling on their own society. <laughs> I mean, seriously. They're not going to get any justice there. Same thing with uh, the rebellion in in Afghanistan, right? The opposition forces in Afghanistan. But then later on, uh, Omar tweeted something to the effect of, and I don't remember the exact words, but it was something to the effect of, well, she was including Israel, the United States, Hamas, and the Taliban um, in a comment about, you know, being held accountable um, at the ICC, the International Criminal Court. And a lot of people sort of jumped on her for that, for, you know, creating a false equivalence between us and the Taliban and between Israel and Hamas, and Hamas is a terrorist organization, and Taliban is, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I, my first reaction to that was, yeah, that is kind of unfair. Um, frankly, it's kind of unfair to... Hamas and the Taliban, (laughs) and again, I am no big fan of either organization, but Hamas and the Taliban are non-state actors. The United States and Israel are nation states. They are powerful nation states, and that they basically hold most of the power in the conflict with their respective enemies, right? Israel holds most of the power the vast majority of the power the ability to to cause harm and and to constrain the other side is mostly on the side of Israel Palestinians particularly the faction that's led by the, by Hamas in Gaza um is basically powerless yeah they have some primitive weapons that they use but aside from that, they they are basically defenseless, and the idea that there should be um, greater responsibility in their on their part to restrain themselves than there than there should be on a on a nation state, a powerful nation state, heavily armed, heavily resourced, well funded. Yeah, that's kind of unfair. It's a little unfair, don't you think? And I mean, if you're comparing the two things, let's be honest, by any metric, more damage is being done to the Palestinians by Israel than is being done on Israel by the Palestinians and more narrowly by Hamas. Far more. It is very lopsided, always has been and likely always will be. And you could say the same thing for Afghanistan, the United States and the Taliban, right? Again, I'm no fan of the Taliban, <laughs> but, you know, who's done most of the killing over there? And uh, it's, it bears reminding, too, that uh, part of the irony of this kerfuffle is that the Taliban is the product of bad policy from decades ago on the part of the United States, just as Hamas is the product of bad policy on the part of Israel. Israel helped in the development of Hamas. It's a matter of public record. They talk about this in Israel. They don't talk about it very much to American audiences, but they do talk about it, and they have talked about it. And, uh, you know, they did help Hamas become a thing. They supported Yassin the cleric that founded Hamas, as a counterbalance to the PLO in Gaza, particularly. And obviously we helped essentially found the Taliban because we wanted to give the the Soviets a pain in the butt in Afghanistan. They were supporting a government that was friendly to them in Afghanistan in the 1970s and the 1980s, and we wanted to give them the biggest pain in the butt possible. So instead of supporting a secular opposition, if we wanted to support the opposition, we supported a hyper-religious fanatical opposition because we thought that would be more corrosive. And so we poured money into it, lots of money into it, and through our efforts in conjunction with the pakistan state and saudi arabia we produced the conditions that that created the taliban the mujahideen and you know the establishment of extremist sort of wahhabi madrasas all across pakistan you know which which deeply rooted this Strain of Islam and this approach to um, to Islamic jihad, you know, in in Pakistani society where it had not been previously, that was established through our alliance with Pakistan and through our support of religious fundamentalist opposition to the Soviet-backed regime in Afghanistan talked about this before but it's it's very similar to what Israel was doing in the occupied territories during the same period from the 70s forward really from the 60s forward because I think I heard Mehdi Hassan talk about this on the on the intercept he sort of encapsulates this much better than I possibly could but um Gaza was under uh, the jurisdiction of Egypt prior to the 1967 war. There was a faction of uh, Yassin, uh, the founder of of Hamas, um, was the head of a uh, faction of the Muslim Brotherhood, which was a thing in in Egypt um, and elsewhere. And uh, when it was cut off from Egypt after the 1967 war, um, the Israelis started cultivating it as, as a counterbalance to the PLO. Um, it bears reminding that uh, not only was Sheikh Yassin um, sort of rooted in Gaza, but so was, so was Yasser Arafat. Yasser Arafat had um, a power base in Gaza Originally, um, and they they saw this as a way of of um of sort of counteracting the secular opposition to the Israeli occupation um, through the 1980s and through the uh, Intifada years, um, and that you know it's it's blown up in their face, literally in some respects. So I mean that's to me that's the ultimate irony is. <laughs> That they're like, oh, we're so outraged that she's comparing us with Hamas and the Israelis with Hamas and us with the Taliban. Yeah, well, you know, the shoe fits, right? Anyway, that's all I got to say about that. Um, And that's pretty much all I have to say about anything. Yeah, I guess that's all I got. Not real talkative today. I'd like to hear what you have to say. Perhaps you're more talkative than me. Perhaps you've got some ideas about this. Perhaps you can bring my mind a bit more into focus. <laughs> I'd appreciate your assistance. Um, you can leave a one-minute voice message when you go to anchor.fm slash strange sound. You'll find the means of doing that there. You can also contact me if you uh, want via Twitter. I'm at strange pod. You know, follow the Twitter feed, like the show, share the show, um, comment on the show, do whatever you like. You can leave comments on iTunes or on Apple Podcasts or on Google Podcasts or whatever. However, you listen to the show, just comment on it, uh, share it. If you want to interact with me, you can also reach me via big green.net. Just click on the contact link. There's other ways to get in touch with me. Um, by all means, leave comments. Glad to turn this into a conversation. Um, You guys have been awful quiet. Let me hear you speak. (laughs) Let me hear what you have to say. Let me hear what you think. I'm sick of listening to me. So, anywho, uh, have a very good week. Take care of yourselves. If you haven't gotten your shots, get your shots, for God's sake. And take good care. We'll see you next time.